Part 2 of Part 7th of Trilby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Estelle Jobson. Trilby by Georges du Maurier. Part 7th. Part 2. After dinner, the ladies and gentlemen left the dining room together and sat in a pretty salon overlooking the boulevard, where cigarettes were allowed and there was music. Mademoiselle Ernestine laboriously played Les Cloches du Monastère by Monsieur Le Febur Roeli, if I'm not mistaken. It's the most bourgeois piece of music I know. Then Dodor, with his sweet high voice, so strangely pathetic and true, sang goody-goody little French songs of innocence, of which he seemed to have an endless repertoire, to his future wife's conscientious accompaniment, to the immense delight, also, of all his future family, who were almost in tears, and to the great amusement of the laird, at whom he winked in the most pathetic parts, putting his forefinger to the side of his nose like Noah Claypole in Oliver Twist. The wonder of the hour, La Svengali, was discussed, of course. It was unavoidable. But our friends did not think it necessary to reveal that she was La Grande Trilby. That would soon transpire by itself. And indeed, before the month was a week older, the papers were full of nothing else. Madame Svengali, La Grande Trilby, was the only daughter of the Honourable and Reverend Sir Lord O'Farrell. She had run away from the primeval forests and lonely marshes of Le Dublin to lead a free and easy life among the artists of the Quartier Latin of Paris, une vie de bohème. She was the Venus Anadiamine from top to toe. She was blanche comme neige, avec un volcan dans le cœur. Casts of her alabaster feet could be had at Bruciani's in the rue de la Sorcière Saint-Denis. He made a fortune. Monsieur Ingres had painted her left foot on the wall of a studio in the Place Saint-Anatole des Arts, and an eccentric Scotch milord, le Comte de Pancoc, had bought the house, containing the flat, containing the studio, containing the wall on which it was painted, had had the house pulled down, and the wall framed and glazed, and sent to his castle in Edinburgh. This, unfortunately, was in excess of the truth. It was found impossible to execute the laird's wish on account of the material the wall was made of. So the Lord Count of Pincock, such was Madame Vinard's version of Sandy's nickname, had to forego his purchase. Next morning our friends were in readiness to leave Paris. Even the laird had had enough of it, and longed to get back to his work again. A hurry Kiri in Yokohama. He had never been to Japan, but no more had anyone else in those early days. They had just finished breakfast, and were sitting in the courtyard of the hotel, which was crowded, as usual. Little Billy went into the hotel post-office to dispatch a note to his mother. Sitting sideways there at a small table and reading letters was Svengali, of all people in the world. But for these two and a couple of clerks, the room was empty. Svengali looked up. They were quite close together. Little Billy, in his nervousness, began to shake, and half put out his hand, and drew it back again, seeing the look of hate on Svengali's face. Svengali jumped up, put his letters together, and passing by little Billy on his way to the door, called him Verfluchter Schweinhund, and deliberately spat in his face. Little Billy was paralysed for a second or two. Then he ran after Svengali and caught him just at the top of the marble stairs and kicked him and knocked off his hat and made him drop all his letters. 
Svengali turned around and struck him over the mouth and made it bleed, and little Billy hit out like a fury, but with no effect. He couldn't reach high enough, for Svengali was well over six feet. There was a crowd round them in a minute, including the beautiful old man in the court suit and gold chain, who called out, Vite, vite, un commissaire de police, a cry that was echoed all over the place. Taffy saw the row and shouted, Bravo, little un, and jumping up from his table, jostled his way through the crowd. And little Billy, bleeding and gasping and perspiring and stammering, said, He spat in my face, Taffy. Damn him. I'd never even spoken to him. Not a word, I swear. Svengali had not reckoned on Taffy's being there. He recognized him at once and turned white. Taffy, who had dogskin gloves on, put out his right hand and deftly seized Svengali's nose between his fore and middle fingers and nearly pulled it off, and swung his head two or three times backward and forward by it, and then from side to side, Svengali holding onto his wrist, and then letting him go, gave him a sounding, open-handed smack on his right cheek. And a smack on the face from Taffy, even in play, was no joke, I'm told. It made one smell brimstone and see and hear things that didn't exist. Svengali gasped worse than little Billy and couldn't speak for a while. Then he said, Lâche, grand lâche, que vous en ferez, mettez-moi. At your orders, said Taffy in beautiful French, and drew out his card case, and gave him his card in quite the orthodox French manner, adding, I shall be here till tomorrow at twelve, but that is my London address, in case I don't hear from you before I leave. I'm sorry, but you really mustn't spit. You know it's not done. I will come to you whenever you send for me even if I have to come from the end of the world. Très bien, très bien, said a military-looking old gentleman close by, who gave Taffy his card, in case he might be of any service, and who seemed quite delighted at the row, and indeed it was really pleasant to note with what smooth, flowing, rhythmical spontaneity the good Taffy could always improvise these swift little acts of summary retributive justice. No hurry, or scurry, or flurry, whatever, not an inharmonious gesture, not an infelicitous line, the very poetry of violence, and almost its only excuse. Whatever it was worth, this was Taffy's special gift, and it never failed him at a pinch. When the commissaire de police arrived, all was over. Svengali had gone away in a cab, and Taffy put himself at the disposition of the commissaire. They went into the post office and discussed it all with the old military gentleman and the majordome in velvet, and the two clerks who had seen the original insult. And all that was required of Taffy and his friends for the present was their names, prenames, titles, qualities, age, address, nationality, occupation, etc. C'est une affaire qui s'arrangera autrement et autre part, had said the military gentleman, Monsieur le Général Comte de la Tour aux Loups. So it blew over quite simply, and all that day a fierce unholy joy burned in Taffy's choleric blue eye. Not, indeed, that he had any wish to injure Trilby's husband, or meant to do him any grievous bodily harm, whatever happened. But he was glad to have given Svengali a lesson in manners. That Svengali should injure him never entered into his calculations for a moment. Besides, he didn't believe Svengali would show fight, and in this he was not mistaken. But he had for hours the feel of that long, thick, shapely Hebrew nose being kneaded between his gloved knuckles, 
and a pleasing sense of the effectiveness of the tweak he had given it. So he went about chewing the cud of that heavenly remembrance all day, till reflection brought remorse, and he felt sorry, for he was really the mildest-mannered man that ever broke a head. Only the sight of little Billy's blood, which had been made to flow by such an unequal antagonist, had roused the old Adam. No message came from Svengali to ask for the names and addresses of Taffy's seconds, so Dodo and Zuzu, not to mention Mr. the General Count of the Two Ralurals, as the laird called him, were left undisturbed. And our three musketeers went back to London, clean of blood, whole of limb, and heartily sick of Paris. Little Billy stayed with his mother and sister in Devonshire till Christmas, Taffy staying at the village inn. It was Taffy who told Mrs. Bagor about Las Vengali's all but certain identity with Trilby, after little Billy had gone to bed, tired and worn out, the night of their arrival. "'Good heavens!' said poor Mrs. Bagor. "'Why, that's the new singing woman who's coming over here. There's an article about her in today's Times. It says she's a wonder, and that there's no one like her. Surely that can't be the Miss O'Farrell I saw in Paris.' It seems impossible, but I'm almost certain it is, and Willie has no doubts in the matter. On the other hand, McAllister declares it isn't. Oh, what trouble! So that's why poor Willie looks so ill and miserable. It's all come back again. Could she sing at all, then, when you knew her in Paris? Not a note. Her attempts at singing were quite grotesque. Is she still very beautiful? Oh, yes. There's no doubt about that. More than ever. And her singing... Is that so very wonderful? I remember that she had a beautiful voice in speaking. Wonderful? Ah, yes. I never heard or dreamed the like of it. Grisi, Alboni, Patti, not one of them to be mentioned in the same breath. Good heavens! Why, she must be simply irresistible. I wonder you're not in love with her yourself. How dreadful these sirens are, wrecking the peace of families. You mustn't forget that she gave way at once at a word from you, Mrs. Bagor, and she was very fond of Willie. She wasn't a siren then. Oh, yes, oh, yes, that's true. She behaved very well. She did her duty. I can't deny that. You must try and forgive me, Mr. Wynne. Although I can't forgive her, that dreadful illness of poor Willie's, that bitter time in Paris. And Mrs. Bagor began to cry, and Taffy forgave. Oh, Mr. Wynne, let us still hope that there's some mistake, that it's only somebody like her. Why, she's coming to sing in London after Christmas. My poor boy's infatuation will only increase. What shall I do? Well, she's another man's wife, you see. So Willie's infatuation is bound to burn itself out as soon as he fully recognises that important fact. Besides, she cut him dead in the Champs-Élysées, and her husband and Willie had a row next day at the hotel and cuffed and kicked each other. That's rather a bar to any future intimacy, I think. Oh, Mr. Wynne, my son cuffing and kicking a man whose wife he's in love with? Good heavens! Oh, it was all right. The man had grossly insulted him, and Willie behaved like a brick, and got the best of it in the end, and nothing came of it. I saw it all. Oh, Mr. Wynne, and you didn't interfere? Oh, yes, I interfered, and everybody interfered. It was all right, I assure you. No bones were broken on either side, and there was no nonsense about calling out or swords or pistols and all that. Thank heaven! In a week or two, little Billy grew more like himself again, and painted endless studies of rocks and cliffs and sea, and Taffy painted with him, and was very content. The vicar and little Billy patched up their feud. 
the vicar also took an immense fancy to taffy whose cousin sir oscarwin he had known at college and lost no opportunity of being hospitable and civil to him and his daughter was away in algiers and all the nobility and gentry of the neighbourhood including the poor dear marquis one of whose sons was in taffy's old regiment were civil and hospitable also to the two painters and taffy got as much sport as he wanted and became immensely popular and they had on the whole a very good time till christmas and a very pleasant christmas if not an exuberantly merry one after christmas little billy insisted on going back to london to paint a picture for the royal academy and taffy went with him and there was dullness in the house of bagor and many misgivings in the maternal heart of its mistress and people of all kinds high and low from the family at the court to the fishermen on the little pier and their wives and children missed the two genial painters who were the friends of everybody and made such beautiful sketches of their beautiful coast las fengali has arrived in london her name is in every mouth her photograph is in the shop windows she is to sing at jay's monster concerts next week she was to have sung sooner but it seems some hitch has occurred a quarrel between monsieur svengali and his first violin who is a very important person a crowd of people as usual only bigger is assembled in front of the windows of the stereoscopic company in regent street gazing at presentments of madame svengali in all sizes and costumes she is very beautiful there is no doubt of that and the expression of her face is sweet and kind and sad and of such a distinction that one feels an imperial crown would become her even better than her modest little coronet of gold stars one of the photographs represents her in classical dress with her left foot on a little stool in something of the attitude of the venus of milo except that her hands are clasped behind her back and the foot is bare but for a greek sandal and so smooth and delicate and charming and with so rhythmical a set and curl of the five slender toes the big one slightly tip-tilted and well apart from its longer and slighter and more aquiline neighbour that this presentment of her sells quicker than all the rest and a little man who with two bigger men has just forced his way in front says to one of his friends look sandy look the foot now have you got any doubts oh yes those are trilby's toes sure enough says sandy and they all go in and purchase largely as far as i have been able to discover the row between svengali and his first violin had occurred at a rehearsal in drury lane theatre svengali it seems had never been quite the same since the fifteenth of october previous and that was the day he had got his face slapped and his nose tweaked by taffy in paris he had become short-tempered and irritable especially with his wife if she was his wife svengali it seems had reasons for passionately hating little billy he had not seen him for five years not since the christmas festivity in the place saint anatole when they had sparred together after supper and svengali's nose had got in the way on this occasion and had been made to bleed but that was not why he hated little billy when he caught sight of him standing on the curb in the place de la concorde and watching the procession of tout paris he knew him directly and all his hate flared up he cut him dead and made his wife do the same next morning he saw him again in the hotel post office looking small and weak and flurried and apparently alone and being an oriental israelite hebrew jew he had not been able to resist the temptation of spitting in his face since he must not throttle him to death the minute he had done this 
he had regretted the folly of it. Little Billy had run after him and kicked and struck him, and he had returned the blow and drawn blood, and then, suddenly and quite unexpected, had come upon the scene that apparition so loathed and dreaded of old, the pig-headed Yorkshireman, the huge British Philistine, the irresponsible bull, the junker, the ex-Crimean, Front de Boeuf, who had always reminded him of the brutal and contemptuous sword-clanking, spur-jingling aristocrats of his own country, ruffians that treated Jews like dogs. Callous as he was to the woes of others, the self-indulgent and highly-strung musician was extra-sensitive about himself, a very bundle of nerves, and especially sensitive to pain and rough usage, and by no means physically brave. The stern, choleric, invincible blue eye of the hated northern Gentile had cowed him at once, and that violent tweaking of his nose, that heavy, open-handed blow on his face, had so shaken and demoralized him that he had never recovered from it. He was thinking about it always, day and night, and constantly dreaming at night that he was being tweaked and slapped over again by a colossal nightmare taffy, and waking up in agonies of terror, rage, and shame. All healthy sleep had forsaken him. Moreover, he was much older than he looked, nearly fifty, and far from sound. His life had been a long, hard struggle. He had for his wife, slave and pupil, a fierce, jealous kind of affection that was a source of endless torment to him, for indelibly graven in her heart, which he wished to occupy alone, was the never-fading image of the little English painter, and of this she made no secret. Gecko no longer cared for the master. All Gecko's dog-like devotion was concentrated on the slave and pupil, whom he worshipped with a fierce but pure and unselfish passion. The only living soul that Svengali could trust was the old Jewess who lived with them, his relative, but even she had come to love the pupil as much as the master. On the occasion of this rehearsal at Drury Lane, he, Svengali, was conducting, and Madame Svengali was singing. He interrupted her several times, angrily and most unjustly, and told her she was singing out of tune, like a verfluchte tomcat, which was quite untrue. She was singing beautifully, Home, Sweet Home. Finally, he struck her two or three smart blows on her knuckles with his little baton, and she fell on her knees, weeping and crying out, Oh, oh, Svengali, ne me battez pas, mon ami, je fais tout ce que je peux on which little Gecko had suddenly jumped up and struck Svengali on the neck near the collarbone, and then it was seen that he had a little bloody knife in his hand, and blood flowed from Svengali's neck, and at the sight of it Svengali had fainted, and Madame Svengali had taken his head on her lap, looking dazed and stupefied, as in a waking dream. Gecko had been disarmed, but as Svengali recovered from his faint and was taken home, the police had not been sent for, and the affair was hushed up, and a public scandal avoided. But La Svengali's first appearance, to Monsieur J.'s despair, had to be put off for a week, for Svengali would not allow her to sing without him, nor indeed would he be parted from her for a minute, or trust her out of his sight. End of Part 2, Part 7th Recording by Estelle Jobson, Rome, Italy